Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Bean Dad. The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to It Could Happen Here pod, a podcast that is today about the fact that 10 years ago it did happen and... When I say it did happen, I mean we occupied an extremely large number of places, and we did so in interesting and incredibly bizarre ways. And with with, with me to talk about this is Garrison, as always. I like that you used the Twitter handle for our podcast, not the actual name, but that's fine. Where can I go for it? <laughs> but hello. Hi, I'm Garrison. With me, I have, I have my special guest, Vicky Osterweil who is an agitator, who is a writer, who has done many, many things, probably most famously uh, writing the book uh, In Defense of Looting um, in 2020 from is Bold Press? Bold Type Press. Bold, Bold Type, type Press, press. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very good book. Uh, People got very you. mad. <laughs> People got very angry. Yeah, yes. thank you. It's just, it's really, I'm really excited to be here to, to talk about the uh, the anniversary of Occupy, from, which yeah. is basically, you know, when I, when I all got this whole train rolling, so... Yeah, and the the other the other thing um, that is, that is probably relevant here is that Vicky was one of the first people at Occupy, and and it, correct me if I'm wrong about this. I, I found an oblique reference to this in one of the things I read 
you facilitated the first meeting? Yes. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's on the record now. Yeah. I, I, uh, yeah. During, um, during the, the general New York city general assembly, it was called in August. Um, there was, you know, uh, ad busters hopefully called for a general assembly and, um, you know, a bunch of us sort of went down there and there was a, a tanky party there um, doing a general assembly, which was just them on a on speakers <laughs> um, doing their regular ranting. Um, it hasn't changed much in 10 years. Um, and uh, and we um, yeah, so we, a bunch of us just went and sat down, uh, you know, to the side of it and started an actual general assembly. And by 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 happenstance, I, I, I facilitated that meeting and it was the first and last Occupy meeting I ever facilitated. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So I I want to roll back a little bit to just before the start of Occupy because yeah, the, the, yeah. The, the more I think about this, the more I've just realized that 2011 was just a profoundly weird time. In in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, I think people have forgotten. Like the entire American security state is at this point being terrorized by a joint anonymous lolsec hacking campaign called Antisec, the symbol of which is a guy in a guy fox mask wearing a monocle and a top hat. And, and this was just like normal. Yeah. This, this was the thing that people looked at. I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, it's it's the it's the, it's the, the anti sec top hat, full face guy in a monocle." Fun fact about that: just before we we forget, David Graeber, uh, rest in peace, who was there uh, in the early days organizing, claimed and um, that he had he had heard and talked to the some of the like overheard the police talking about the reason they didn't sweep the Occupy encampment the first day when we were pretty weak, frankly, or the first week was because there were a bunch of Guy Fox masks and they were scared. <laughs> they were scared they were going to get hacked if they, if they attacked. <laughs> they were scared we were going to hack them and steal their... Yeah, so so it was a weird time indeed. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the, the, the other thing that's, you know, I, I think important about this time period if, if we're looking back at what Occupy was is that... So this is this is three years after the... The financial collapse, and you know, so, so I think so, you know, in the run up to 2011, there, there's been a few, there's been a few protests. There's been there was a big thing in Greece in 2008 that was kind of related, kind of unrelated. But I, I think, in my sense of it, you know, I was like, I don't know, I was like 13. I was like, I was like an actual baby child. But my, my sense of it was kind of just like, like there is there is this like sense that everyone's just kind of waiting for something to happen. Yeah. And it just like hadn't and it just like kept going and kept going and kept going and then you know and, and then and then Tunisia starts. Yeah. And mm-hmm. suddenly there's you know there, there there's protests in Tunisia, there's protests in Egypt, there's like people fighting tanks in the street in Bahrain and you know and you, this this is you know this this becomes known as the Arab Spring and it starts to spread to a lot of places. And Vicky, I want to talk I want to ask you about this because you you were in Spain. When it starts yes. started there, I want to talk about what 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 yeah. was going on there and <laughs> yeah. So I, I wasn't there when it started, um, but but uh, but yes, um, basically, you know, and I want to shout out like there were there were a bunch of like movements like in two thousand eight, right after the crash, there were a bunch of protests like outside Wall Street. They were very small, but they were like sort of they like produced some images, and then there was um, you know in two thousand nine, there's the Oscar Grant Rebellion in Oakland. And you have the Madison occupation earlier in 2011, um, where they, where the the workers unions took over the the state house. Oh in yeah, Wisconsin. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everyone does. It was actually really important yeah. at the time. Um, but yes, yeah, so so you know, so I think I'm glad you brought up Greece because I think actually Greece really that that sort of anarchist rebellion in 2008 2009 really kicked off the cycle in a certain way, but also didn't quite 
it wasn't quite the first domino, you know, it was sort of more of a like forecast. So yeah, so Arab Spring, uh, you know, is, is huge. It's this huge, huge event. And the U.S. media is loving it because obviously like these sort of old, you know, quote unquote Marxist dictators are falling. Um, and so, of course, the U.S. is like all about it, um, which, of course, later later on, the return of the tankies will use to um, to confuse uh, everyone on the U.S. left and destroy all solidarity with Syria. Anyway, um, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Um, so then then in uh, then in that summer, um, you get this this wave of early summer, like May and June. In fact, the 15th of May was when the movement started in, in Spain, and then it starts soon again in Greece. And it was similar to Occupy in that there was these people coming together in these sort of encampments in the center of the city. Um, I don't know if people remember um, or, or know this history economically, but Spain and Greece had recently been sort of going through these like big, big booms, economic booms, just for about five or six years that turned out to be real estate bubbles funded by their entry into the EU. And 2008 just smashed that. And they were just like incredibly impoverished. I mean, like Spain was facing something like 50% youth unemployment. Greece was like similar. Spain has recovered more than Greece has in the intervening yeah. years, but it's still bad. Um, so, so yeah, so you had all these, it was, it was, you know, predominantly young folks who were, um, you know, had been pushed out of the economy, who'd been pushed out of their homes, whose families had lost their homes, um, gathering together. And it was all over both countries and it was huge. Um, I happened to just be in Barcelona. I had been on a planned vacation with some friends, um, you know, that we had, we had planned like sort of six months earlier when it all popped off. And I had also just started my writing, um, I would say career, but that's very generous. <laughs> um, I had started technically being paid for writing things and they were like, oh, write about it. Like, let, like cover it while you're there. And because no one in the U.S. was talking about what was going on in Spain, when my article popped up, like, and this is like, this is really strange, but it was like the early days of Twitter as well, um, 2011, like I guess Twitter started in 2009 or something. And so like, so the, 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 one of the accounts from the camp tweets out my article. So I went there the next day. I was like, I wrote that article. And then I was like embedded for a week. And I was there for like kind of the height of the popular power of the movement in Barcelona only for a week. But I was there on the day when there was a two and a half million person march through Barcelona. Um, just like still probably the biggest march I've ever been part of and probably ever will be um, was like that. And so, you know, so that goes on for for a few months in Greece and Barcelona. It sort of hits similar limits that Occupy would eventually hit, which is that like, you know, that that if you can take the space away from people, that's that's yep. the common ground. And like you can't really have the movement without the encampment and also all the way in which the, the camps sort of force a kind of internal navel gazing and people like get really obsessed with maintaining the camp rather than the struggle with the city at large. All of those, all of those contradictions sort of like came up in, in Spain and Greece as well. But at the time, you know, I, I was there for the height of it. I come back to New York. I'm like, this is going to happen in the U S like it has to. Um, I think a lot of folks who had been watching felt that way as well. Um, I actually took part in this thing called Bloombergville, which was like oh, 50, you're, you're yeah, 50 people on a sidewalk. Um, it was for Michael Bloomberg, right? Um, 50 people on a sidewalk, 50 people, was gender. That was like when we were doing really well. Like mostly <laughs> 15 of us, like 15 of us on a sidewalk um, in the financial district, like getting yelled at by cops, um, you know, sleeping on cardboard, you know, Occupy style, but without any attention or, or yep. solidarity. Um, and, but because I had been in Barcelona and I still had these comrades in Barcelona, I was like, oh my God, we're doing it in New York. So we had this thing where Bloombergville, which is like 20 people, like got to talk to a general assembly in Barcelona at the height of its power, like on a like internet link, like a really early internet link, you know? Um, and 
you know, so 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 there was all this energy that was happening, and then I think really crucially, the London riots pop off, and that doesn't get talked about very much anymore. Uh, partially because the UK left really um, stabbed yeah, the writers in yeah. the back during that, and 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 have and and repressed the memory of it largely, um, and have suffered ever since, in my opinion, strategically. Um, but you know, that was for us in the US. That was huge. It was huge watching um, watching those riots unfold. Like you know. Again, this was like early live streaming. So like we were like watching live feeds of the riots, you know, which like was not a thing that you could really do without a TV before. There was just like there was a lot of stuff going on that felt exciting and and was and really important and and inevitable that it would come to the US because things were so messed up over here. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I think we should talk about what a general assembly actually is, because I think a lot of people are either going to have like never actually ran into what exactly is going on or have sort of forgotten in the last 10 years after they've sort of fallen out of favor. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's um, it was never my favorite either, honestly, but <laughs> it's a uh, it's a meeting style um, designed. Um, it actually does largely actually come from from um, European anarchist traditions um, from from Spain and Greece. But as as many of us know, um, a lot of those traditions go back further um, and have crossed crossed the water. Uh, General assemblies. Actually, there's a long history of them in indigenous communities in uh, Turtle Island, for example. So it's an old meeting style um, in which um, the Quakers also the Quakers um, famously also sort of uh, sort of uh, co-opted it from from indigenous folks out here on the East Coast. Um, but, um, it's a meeting style in which, uh, you know, with the exception of a facilitator, which is occasionally, but not always present, um, everyone is able to speak, um, together. There is some, there's an agenda sometimes, but it's basically a meeting designed where everyone present in the meeting has like an equal voice and it's not really designed generally for, um, decision-making specifically or in with like really specific goals in mind often. Um, although there will be sort of like things that are trying to get settled. Um, but it's, 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 it's designed to allow, you know, a very, very multivocal approach and for everyone to sort of put in their, their thoughts and their ideas. Um, and often is connected, although not necessarily, but is often connected to consensus, um, operation where, um, things can't get sort of decided on unless everyone sort of agrees. Um, and in Occupy, um, that was, the General Assembly was sort of, um, was a bit controversial because it was just whoever showed up obviously participates in it. Yeah. So, you know, unlike, unlike, you know, an organizational meeting where you, you know, everyone knows each other and you have to have a, you know, you have to be there with an invite or whatever, um, you know, whatever cranky wingnut, um, wanted to show up, uh, could, um, and that, had pluses and minuses. It was charming sometimes, but it was also very frustrating. Um, and in, in New York, where I was, um, it was made almost impossible to function by this thing called the people's mic, um, oh, yeah. which I think still happens sometimes. People also have a mic check, um, and, and then everyone repeats what was said. But that means that it takes four times as long to talk as normal. Hmm. So when you have a wingnut, you know, like advocating for Ron Paul, and then you've got 30 people echoing him every four words, <laughs> it, makes, it makes discussion completely impossible. And a micro history of the people's mic, the reason that happened was because in the first week uh, in Zuccotti Park, um, whenever we got on a megaphone, police would come and arrest whoever was on the megaphone because you weren't allowed to use amplified sound in New York. And one organizer was like, oh, no, no, we can, like, use the people's mic. We can, like, repeat back to each other. And this is when we, there's still mostly, like, 30 to 40 people on the park at any one time. It's very small. That didn't feel so bad. But then when the movement really got big, the people's mic became completely unwieldy and also was a response to a was a cowardly response to police repression, frankly, um, and was a way of so the people's mic is is in my opinion a reactionary 
form. Anyway, that is so, <laughs> it's been 10 years. I haven't been able to complain about this in like eight years. Thank you so much. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so the General Assembly is just a meeting forum um, that often often associated with anarchy, anarchist practice or radical democratic practice um, in which sort of consensus is aimed for by allowing everyone to speak their mind, I would say. Yeah, and so and th- this, this I think gets us back to wh- where we opened this episode, which is Adbusters calls an event with literally no plans to like do anything. They're just like, yeah, everyone, we're occupying Wall Street. And then... Yeah, and you know, as, as you talked about at the beginning of it, you guys basically hijack. <laughs> well, sort of. I mean, so I mean, Adbusters, Adbusters doesn't show up, like you said. There's, I've never met an Adbusters person, um, and it was funny. Like we would do jokes about it, but I think it's also thinking about this in preparation for this interview. It's also interesting because Adbusters and their culture jamming is kind of like one of the results of the sort of alter globalization movement of the like late nineties and early two thousands, the summit hopping stuff, um, the anarchy movement of like one generation ahead of, of Occupy. Um, so I think it's sort of appropriate that Adbuster is sort of like, you know, was present in this legacy in a certain way. And a lot of those organizers were as well, but yes, I'm sorry. Did I, did I just jump in before you finish? No, no, no. (laughs) Okay. Um, the, the, yeah. So, 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 so a bunch of people, I don't actually know who calls for an August 2nd, you know, General Assembly to talk about the call for September 17th to Occupy Wall Street. Um, and at that at that point, that's when the thing I was describing earlier, like, happens where, where um, you know, we, a bunch of folks, and, and I, I really want to underline this, most of them were people who had been in Spain or Greece. Um, David Graeber was also there. It was like a lot of old heads. There was like a, there was a comrade from Japan. Um, it was a very international uh, crew who had like had experience in these movements over the summer. Um came and had this general assembly and sort of ran it that way and broke out. We had, we broke off working groups and then there was meetings sort of once a week and then working group meetings within that um, and general assemblies from August 2nd till September 17th, at which point, um, you know, occupy the date, the date that Adbusters had called for um, actually happened. So my, my impression of this, and I, I was, I was very small. I had very limited idea of what was going on. I, the, the way I remember in the media is that like the, the, the the media was weirdly interested in it in a way that I've never seen them. I've never seen them cover another social movement that wasn't like literally burning their offices down. And it was like, right. it was like in, in the beginning, it was, I mean, you know, obviously the right wing media is losing their minds, but they were kind of, kind of supportive of it. And, and I think, I don't know. I want to see what you think about this. One of the things that, that happens in both, in both Greece and in Spain is that, the, the 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 product movement of the squares is these electoral movements and these electoral movements just fail like catastrophically like Sar- sarzia mm-hmm. takes power like like they they like they they have they have they have a like their their finance minister is a left communist he is like he is the most far left person ever like to hold office since like the spanish anarchists in 1930 in, like 1936 and they implement austerity anyways uh in spain you get podemos and it's like well okay you, you have you know they had this thing called the electoral war machine they're they're going to take over the spanish political system and they, they just it collapses it just doesn't work they've they've never like they've 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 they've, they've never taken power they've never really got anywhere they 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 successfully evicted a bunch of squats in, in catalonia but yeah but and and i think this is my impression of it was that i i think the us media thought that they could do, they could do this to occupy Hmm. And and I I think they kind of it's weird because looking so you know like I I I come in and like to to this kind of stuff around 2016 2017 and I, and I think it it's like it weirdly worked but it worked because they were able to recruit the anti occupy people 
Yeah. And so it's like, yeah. And so they, 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 they did finally get their like cadre of like pseudo left organizers that they could use to build the Democratic Party. It's just it was like Jacobin and then all, like the whole the whole sort of anti-occupy group. Yeah. So those folks were actually um, active during Occupy um, critiquing the, the people who now most loudly um, claim the legacy of Occupy. Um, you know, as you said, Jacobin, a lot of those sort of social Democrat groups um, at the time. Um, and those of us who were there remember they hated Occupy. They would show up, but they like would critique it constantly. They would write all these articles about how it was terrible, how there were no demands. It was too disorganized. And then I think, you know, when Black Revolt got put on the table. They were like, bring back Occupy. We like that better. Um, (laughs) But, um, but I think um, to be as harsh as possible, but um, I think like, um, you know, yes, there was, there was a lot of Uh media coverage. It didn't feel super friendly at the time. Um, There was a lot of, there was a lot of media coverage. Like the media was very curious. It was very interested, but a lot of that coverage was like, why do they have no demands? Like, Mm -hmm. why are they so disorganized? Why are they so smelly? Whatever. Like there was a lot of like, there was a lot of slander in the press, but also a lot of attention. Um, which, you know, it turned, turned out was as good as you could get, but at the time didn't, didn't feel very good. Um, yeah. particularly I think. Yeah. Uh, but yes, those, those forces, those forces were already present, um, in, you know, in, in, uh, Occupy itself, um, you know, sort of denouncing it, um, for its disorganization, um, and then eventually claiming that it was the reason that Bernie Sanders happened, um, <laughs> which isn't totally wrong. Also, yeah. Like, I want to be really clear. Like, I think, and I think we'll get into this more, but I think like, the thing that about the thing that was important about Occupy and the thing that the people who, in my opinion, like my comrades during Occupy or people I meet who were like doing Occupy stuff, but like I, who I didn't know, but like now we, I, I you know, I, I roll with them. Most of us have the, have the, you know, the analysis, but like it was really important that we were doing politics in the street. It was really important that we were back together, that we were talking politics. And then there were really, really intense extreme limits to what Occupy could have done. Um, and I think Oakland really pushed those, um, and, and, you know, and got to those, but, um, and I think the folks who were like, no, no, Occupy was good at the time were like, Occupy is terrible. Um, and I think that's worth noting and thinking about. So I I think, yeah, before we sort of go into talk a bit about what happened in Oakland and talk about some of their stuff. So on on a day-to-day basis, like what is Occupy actually doing? Because I think that's also been sort of lost in this whole like, cause everyone remembers like the slogans and everyone remembers the fact that there's a thing, but you know, like the, the, there's, there's a bunch of working groups and they're doing things. So, like, what, what was that like, like day to day and then on a sort of broader level? Yeah. So, so, um, so first of all, again, I was only in New York. I spent some time at Occupy Boston as well. Um, but like, I don't have a sense of what other places were like. So I, I really can't, I mean, other than having heard from people. So I want to be very clear that I'm like mostly addressing that. Um, I think the thing that was going on was that Zuccotti Park, like the park was like Total chaos. Um, part of that was because there was a drum circle that basically was going 24 <laughs> hours a day um, there, which meant that whenever you were down there, and it was like a canyon, Zuccotti Park is surrounded by skyscrapers. So it was just this incredible cacophony all the time, um, which I think was cool. It really ruined a lot of finance bros, like, like, months, you know, <laughs> or, or, like orally you know, um, with an A there. Um, but I think like, but it also was pretty intense and unpleasant. Sometimes you were like, please stop. Oh my God. Like that's at one point, a general assembly, I think decided that drums were like only acceptable during certain hours, like near the end of the movement, like the drum, the drum circle got reproached when in fact they were like actually the biggest agents of chaos in Zuccotti Park, it turned out, <laughs> which is another important lesson. Um, but um, yeah, I think so. So, you know, also because I had been in Bloombergville, because I'd been in Barcelona, I didn't, invest myself very heavily in, in camp management stuff. 
So I mostly was doing um, work. One of the things that I think gets forgotten about is that there were snake marches basically three or four a day, every day. After, after the first week when we were really small, when it got big, there were just constant, constant marches through the city, just like always going off. Like you would run in, you'd be on one march, you'd run into another march. Like on a Saturday or Sunday when like people were really like out there, like it was, it was really like, there was a lot of mayhem. There'd be big planned marches that would then be bigger. Um, so there was like a lot of like, um, what people now would call direct action, what I, I would call largely like sort of symbolic practice for direct action. Mostly. Um, I don't mind. I, I like marches. I certainly got my miles in then. Like, I don't feel <laughs> like I need to do that again, but um, but you know, so then at, at the camp, people were just living there. There were a lot of like <clears throat> a lot of punks, a lot of like, you know, a lot of homeless folks, obviously. And some, and some encampments had more, had a higher concentration of unhoused people. Some con- in New York, because of all the media spectacle and all the money that came in, mm. we had a lot of nonprofit grifters by the end, mm. um, in the encampment. Yeah. Uh, but there's also like a library, um, a free library with all these books that like would be donated. Um, there was a lot of like, you know, political agitation. There'd be people standing around the, the, um, the, you know, the corners of the park, you know, with, with signs and yelling at people. And it's also important to remember that like Zuccotti Park in New York is tiny. It's tiny. We had originally wanted to do it on this big plaza, like Citibank Plaza. Um, and the cops had heard about that and fenced it off. So on the 17th, we just like, we just, um, uh, what's the word? We get, we, we did a. Oh my God! Football audible. metaphors. Called an this audible. Is why you shouldn't do this. We called an audible. Thank yeah, you. There we go. <laughs> so we so Zuccotti is this tiny little park. It's incredibly dense, and it's surrounded by you know, like I said, by skyscrapers. It's in this really weird part of the city that no one would ever spend any time in if they didn't have to. Otherwise, um, so that sort of so there's all this stuff going on, and then there are all these there are general assemblies twice a day, um, which, as I said, in New York were pr- particularly unhelpful. Um, but I think anarchists in a lot of cities who I've talked to, like I had a comrade down in D.C., one in Denver, they sort of said that the the general assemblies either quickly like got shifted or got or became irrelevant. Um, I think the general assemblies were not were not in the end were were symbolically important, but not but not really uh, a driving force um, of my experience. Um, and then there would be there would be like I said, there'd be a lot of organizing outside of the park. There'd be a lot of like meetings and you know talks and um, direct actions and marches. Um, and then there would be, you know, uh, I guess that's kind of the extent of it, right. Is that there was like a lot of direct action that, but there was always this park where you could go and like run into people and like hook up with people, meet people and like do a weird thing. And I think that was really like the heart of the movement was the fact that there was this place you could go meet someone and like link into something weird and maybe cool and maybe not, it doesn't matter. But like there was always something to do kind of, and it was constant. It was like this sort of 24 hour Right, like experience, and I think that was really what um, what separated it from from other from other movement waves that we've had we've had since, um, and was 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 probably I think its greatest strength in many ways. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. 
if you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Yeah, I think that, that was, that was the, the impression that I got. And part of this also was when I, when I was in college, like every once in a while, you just get assigned like some person writing about Occupy. And it was like most of them were just extremely cranky about the whole thing. But, sure, you know, one, one of the things I think was interesting about it is that everyone seemed to agree, at least to some extent, that part of what was going on was that. It's 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 this way to do. I don't know if identity formation is quite the right word for it, but it's it's this way to sort of like rebuild social connections and rebuild like social sort of bonds in a way that just had you know as as public space becomes just the cops, 
And you right. know, like I, I like there's there's a table in Chinatown that I like call the cop table that I'm really mad about that like like this, this is in Chicago Chinatown I would like go there certain from the library and there's a sign sign on the table that says if you loiter at this table you will be arrested it's like this is a picnic table like the cops are you this table is threatening that it is going to arrest you if you use it for what's using you know for what you're supposed to use tables for yeah 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 exactly yeah no I think I think that's right I think like it was. You know, there was a lot of, um, at the time, a lot of people were talking about, um, uh, embarrassingly, about Hart and Negri's sort of like multitude <laughs> stuff. Oh, um, a really, a really, a, a much better book that was important was also um, David Graeber's Debt. Yeah. Um, but I think like, you know, and there was like a lot of like people saying things about like the Agora, you know, um, democracy, the sort of political, the political encounter, space of encounter. Um, and that stuff wasn't all wrong. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of being a little sarcastic with a lot of it, but like, <laughs> But I think like like there there was a lot of you know um part of how we sh- I think we should understand um the over discussed under under you know like over analyzed word neoliberalism that like has largely become meaningless one of the things I should un- I think I think is valuable for understanding is a process by which capitalism responded to the long 60s by disorganizing its production process mm-hmm. such that the long sixties could never happen again. Right. So like, like the, the, for the, the, the control, the, like the concentration of workers within, within production in such a way that they could be agitated by students and then like sort of radically unionize wildcat and sort of like almost overthrow a government, right? Like the neoliberalism is like, you know, it smashes the unions. Yes. But it also, it also like distributes out the act of production, right? So that, so that that's not so easily done. And I think one of the real problems of, you know, that was facing social movement, um, you know, in the, in the period, you know, the, the long period, like, you know, you had stuff like in the U.S. again, that's, this is where I know the best. But like, you know, you have the L.A. uprising, which is huge. Um, and you have, you know, the, the, glo- the summit hopping movement and anti-globalization, which, you know, could attack a target. But there wasn't really a sense of like how it felt hard to do a local struggle um, beyond like literally like a, a revolutionary riot like LA, which, you know, you can't really precipitate. Um, yeah. I mean, you can't really precipitate a movement either, obviously, but I think like, but like, but like a, a, a political, a political movement, a form of political organizing that didn't require something on the level of George Floyd, which is what the LA rebellion was. Right. Um, but that also didn't require like uh, an action from capital that you were like striking against. Right. Like the, the, um, the, uh, you know, the, the summits or whatever. Um, the, and that, that, Again, and like the, all of these eras are very important. This is not to like, you know, obviously like this is with, with respect for those movements. Um, but yeah, it, we felt, I think it felt like we were in a political wilderness. And I think that that like um, Occupy really, and the movement of the squares globally, I think, um, really like demonstrated that it was possible to practice a kind of street politics even without, um, you know, a shop floor where you mm. could organize, even without, um, you know, a a, a, a a capital P party uh, to organize within. Um, and I think that was really important. I think it also scared a lot of people who, and, and continues to, who are committed to those politics. Yeah. Um, and um, to the 20th century workers movement uh, or the 19th and 20th century labor movement, which they somehow fantasize will come back um, if they just wish hard enough and write enough <laughs> books or whatever. Um, and I think like... Um, so I think that was powerful. I also think like, like, yeah, sorry, we can move on to legacy later, but yes, I think that was like, I think that was very much like an important thing was, was just like, and you know, um, I graduated college in 2009. 
Um, so I was like part of that millennial generation that like, you know, had gone into incredibly deep debt. Yeah. Like we'd have a college degree and then like the, the bottom fell out of the economy. There were no jobs. Um, and like, I think there were a lot of, you know, like people who like had anticipated a middle-class life, um, of some kind. Uh, not that I really had at that point, but whatever, like, but, but a lot of people like in my economic cohort, like had, um, <clears throat> uh, suddenly facing, you know, proletarianization. Right. And I think that was one of the strengths of the movement. I think that was that, you know, like I mentioned the statistics in great in Spain and Greece. Like, I think that was a global aspect of this kind of movement. Um, uh, um, Arab spring too. Like there was, there was a lot of like, that was really a response to the economic crisis. Obviously those folks were already more proletarian than the people who, yeah. the young people in, in the squares movements. Um, but they, they innovated, they, they, they created the tactics in, in Arab spring, right. Um, Tahrir square, most famously in Cairo. Um, and, um, I think like those creating a meeting place where um, you didn't require a pre-constructed like political community um, in order to engage was a strength and a weakness. Um, and I think it, it also, you know, as a result of the dynamics of the General Assembly, the dynamics of the sort of voluntarist nature of that, what I'm describing, um, it led to a lot of people who were already confident, who were already feeling good, being able to like take more power, right? Like, um, uh, and I think it also was a very white movement, um, certainly in New York, but, but I think, I think across the country, um, it was largely, it was largely, you know, it was, it was, uh, majority white in a way that, you know, by higher percentages than any movement that we've really been part of since, um, was, um, and that was obviously a limit, um, for, for reasons that will be obvious to everyone, including the idea that like a lot of people pushed that, like the police are part of the 99%, yeah. right? Um, uh, okay, so let, let, let's talk about the police because you know yes, talk about neoliberalism. Please. Like that's you know that's that's the one of the other extremely important aspects of this is this immense militarization. I mean, okay, so I, I think the militarization of the police as a phrase I think is somewhat misleading in that like it, they, the cops have always like shot people. Yeah, but you know the. There's yeah, there's 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 still like there's an intense sort of ramp up of of the prison sector. There's you you have this intense boom in the size of prisons. You have uh mm. yeah, you you have, you have increasing parts of the economy that are just I mean, you have entire towns that used to be sort of manufacturing sectors that used to be sort of in, in, involved in sort of industrial production that are just like it the the economy is now just there's a prison there. And right. and, I, and I think this is also looking back one of the things that looked like Occupy kind of ran, ran up into because you know, occupies this attempt to like, you know, form a democratic space, and it, it it relies crucially on this this thing that is nominally in the constitution but doesn't exist, which is the like the the, the right to freedom of speech and the right to freedom of assembly, and freedom yeah. of assembly like that is that is like that is bullshit. It does not exist. If like if if you actually believe that this exists, like try getting like seventy people into a space and see how like just like I don't know like into a street or just just like into, into yeah. like have a bunch of people mm-hmm. in a park. And just like see yeah. how fast the cops show up because you know it turns yeah. out like yeah yeah first like, like, time like, I yeah that I was I was at any kind of protest cops immediately wanted to take anything I was holding you're not <laughs> yeah. you're not you're yeah. not allowed to it's yeah. like the first thing if 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 you, if, if you have anything in your hands that's mm-hmm. that that is mm-hmm. a that is a problem yeah it's like like the first amendment is just it's super completely superseded by traffic laws like laws about like sidewalk maintenance like not it's it's all fake like none of it <laughs> yeah like you're, you're not you're not allowed to and this is this i think is is partially why this is kind of a talk but this is partially i think why 
there's so much focus on the right about the first amendment because they they want to they want to draw attention away from the fact that like the actual thing that's fake about it is that you can't gather people and meet anywhere and they want to draw it into these like inane like this professor like said the n-word a bunch of times in class yes, and uh, isn't yeah, it bad that people right. are mad at them but but, but i think also yeah. go, go, go t- tie this sort of back to occupy you know okay so so occupy functions right in in insofar as there is a a physical location where people can go and physically interact with each other and that's a problem because at at some point the police are just like no and yeah. they start clearing the encampments and i think this is this is the other thing with occupy is that outside of like parts of oakland and that that's a whole other thing that yeah but, but it it's it's incredible like studiously nonviolent in a way that like nothing I've ever seen before or since is. Yeah. So, so, so there's a lot there. I'm going to, I want to talk about it because that's, there's a lot. Um, but yeah, so I think, I think the militarization of the police thesis um, is, is incomplete if you don't also talk about the policification of the military. Right. Mm-hmm. So like part of what happens with, with the great expansion of the, um, of the uh, carceral state, part of that is also a response to the Vietnam war yep. um, and, and, mass resistance within you know the troops there are like in the viet in the in like the last two years when ground troops are there in in vietnam there's like 1400 fragging incidents where where um you know where where privates and and recruits killed their officers the u.s army during the during vietnam was on the brink of a of collapse in the way that like like the Russian army was looking in 1917. Yeah, right? it was so, like, like, like the, the numbers, I think I saw a number at one point that was like 40% of the army by the end of Vietnam was either on strike or just like not following orders. Yeah, no, it was, it was complete. There was to- the reason that, that uh, Nixon pursues Vietnamization, which is when they just start doing air campaigns, bombing and napalm is because they couldn't rely on ground troops anymore. They just, they were useless. They were all high. Um, you know, the talk about, you know, there's a lot of talk about like heroin, but like that was actually kind of a form of resistance within the lines in a complicated way, whatever. Okay. That's all very, so the military realizes that it can't function as a mass military in the model that uh, nation states have done since the Napoleonic Wars, right? Which is like the 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 mass, you know, the mass recruitment of the citizen soldier. Um, that's sort of how war is fought between you know 1810 and, and 1970, and then it becomes clear that that's not going to work anymore uh, because the because the aims of the countries and the power of nationalism have become too abstracted. Fascism has done too much damage to that image. There's just like there's it doesn't really work anymore. So the military turns into a sort of what it always was also, which is like a colonial mm-hmm. policing force. And so the police, and the military drift towards one another in form and function. Okay. So in Occupy, um, one of the micro histories that I think gets forgotten is that like, I mean, because, because it took a week and like, who remembers this week, except for like weirdos like me who were there, um, is that like, there was no one at Zuccotti in the first, first week. And one of the big things that happened was these, 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 you know, young white girls got caught in a police net and pepper sprayed. And there was this video that went around of them getting pepper sprayed and screaming. Mm-hmm. This particular this, this woman on her knees, you know, screaming with with tears and pepper spray yeah. going down her face. And that really outraged people because, you know, they were, you know, it was police repression and police violence. So in terms of the question of nonviolence, yes, um, there was a lot of nonviolence. It was a constant fight that mm-hmm. took, honestly, took until the George Floyd uprising for the right yeah. for our side to win, frankly. But <laughs> but but um but during Occupy. There was, you know, there was a lot of nonviolence nonsense. Um, and I think like, but, but another thing that happened though, was that like, you know, like I said, people were marching every day. So even in New York, where I think 
the political height was kind of achieved October 1st when we took the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, I think I think New York never really like had a big moment again. Like it was largely sort of like smaller things after that. But um, but like and there was a mass arrest on the Brooklyn Bridge. So we marched over the Brooklyn Bridge. The Brooklyn Bridge got shut down. They arrested 700 of us. Um, it was the first big infrastructure shutdown that had happened in the U.S. since the L.A. riots. It was it was a big deal at the time. Now can, it happens can I, all can the I, time. Can I put a note out, though, specifically for the Brooklyn Bridge? If, if you're because people I, I've seen every every single time there's one of these movements, people try to take the Brooklyn Bridge and they all get arrested. And it's like, can can y'all like, please, I am begging you, if you're going to try to take a bridge, make sure you have a way out. Like, yeah, you, you have to hold one of the that's, sides. Otherwise, that's the all problem of you are going to get arrested. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> you got to yeah. have a way out. A bridge please is designed to not have a way out. That's yeah. how bridges work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> please, please, please don't all get arrested. It's, it's in fact bad. And yeah, sorry. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, I, no, no, no. So, I have seen a few people successfully take bridges a few times, but that's because there was like three cop cars and like 15,000 people. Yeah, um, exactly. If you have like a block with 200 kids, you're not going to be able to hold the bridge. Yeah. could happen here is a production of cool zone media for more podcasts from cool zone media visit our website coolzonemedia.com or check us out on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts you can find sources for it could happen here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com sources thanks for listening life's better with american family insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.